This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. what this show is about. When I say that, I don't mean just today. I mean in general. I mean, there are other shows that are very easily defined. Uh, you listen to some shows and you could tell uh, the, the, that show is about sports. Uh, this show is about uh, politics. This show is about uh, how to get women to sleep with you. Uh, this show is about uh, gardening. This show is about cars. This is a show I like to try to talk about everything, and I hope that people respond. But if I were to try to boil down the overall theme of this show, I think it would be this is a show about having conversations and helping people have conversations and promoting the cause of free speech wherever applicable. I try to have, you know, as Bob Grant used to say, a free and open exchange of ideas and of opinions with callers. I like to have guests on that uh, represent a broad spectrum of interests and views. I don't know of another radio show. Well, I don't want to say another radio show. I don't know of many radio shows that will go from having comedic dentists to law professors on and in my in my experience that's not an unusual thing for us that's monday we do stuff like that regularly and i'm very interested in having conversations and we have two guests on that are going to fit that bill but i'm particularly interested in having conversations with school and in school and helping people have conversations with one another and we delved into this when it was time to deal with Thanksgiving relatives with whom you may have differing views. Helping people have conversations with one another that don't turn into screaming matches and having conversations with one another that are meaningful, especially with whom you disagree. There was a very interesting article in uh, Chalkbeat that I read yesterday. I don't know if you're familiar with Chalkbeat, but basically it's a uh, news source that covers education. And it's uh, primarily New York-based, but it's not exclusive to New York. This particular article was uh, about New York, but I think this could be replicated in any city in America, maybe the world. And you have many New York City teenagers that are very interested in what's going on in the Middle East right now. You have both Muslim and Jewish students that told this publication, Chalkbeat, that they've noticed an uptick in hurtful and derogatory comments from classmates at school or over social media. 
And this has been borne out in a state review that found that both Islamophobic and anti-Semitic rhetoric have each jumped by more than 400% on social media since the Hamas attack on Israel on October 7th. Students, meanwhile, are glued to their phone. They're trying to keep up with an endless stream of often graphic social media content about this ongoing war while attempting to sift through a barrage of conflicting information and viewpoints. And it's scary to be teenagers and dealing with anti-Semitism and Islamophobia and not necessarily knowing how you can get true information about this. School can feel like one of the few safe places to make sense of the Israel-Hamas war, to learn about the historical underpinnings of the crisis and try in some small way to take action. But here's what's interesting. In New York, and I imagine this is true in other school systems around the country, schools are taking divergent approaches to navigating conversations about the war, and in some cases, largely avoiding it. This is what Chalkbeat is reporting based on interviews they've done with educators and students at six schools. At some high schools, particularly large ones, pressure to keep up with fast-paced curriculums, fears about further inflaming tensions, and caution about steering clear of political landmines, especially after a warning from the school's chancellor, David Banks, to keep personal views out of the classroom, have made it difficult to create dedicated spaces to talk about the war. That's not me saying this. That's what both students and teachers told Chalkbeat, one senior at Midwood High School in Brooklyn. It's kind of like an elephant in the room for many students. There haven't been any discussions in classes. Think about that, my friends. We are at a time when some of the most significant events in maybe a century, or close to it, are unfolding right now that have the potential to envelop the whole world into war. And students, when they learn about history, when they learn about current events, when they, I don't even know if you still learn about current events, when you learn about civic affairs, when you learn about geography, they're not even being taught it. And the students are telling folks they are interested in learning. This is a major problem. I'd love to know from you, what do we do about this? I remember, and and now, look, it has implications on the presidential election as well. Poll after poll is saying that both young voters and Palestinian voters, both of, or Muslim voters, that were otherwise sympathetic to Biden, they're abandoning him because they don't like what he's done on the uh, Israel stuff, uh, the Israel question. So, how do you even have a discussion about the presidential race when you're not talking about one of the key factors in what may make or break the outcome for the incum- incumbent? This is ludicrous. We're now in a place where schools are afraid to teach current events and world affairs. Now, I recognize that this is much easier said than done. And in practice, how do you uh, teach current events without being 
heckled for what your sources are or whether you're showing a pro-Palestinian bias or a pro-Israeli bias. But if we're in a place where children who want to learn about complicated geopolitical issues can't even learn about it in school, we're in a bad place. My question for you is, what do we do about this? What do we do about this? 800-848-9222. How can you have conversations about controversial current events in school while adhering to Chancellor Banks' dictum to keep personal views out of the classroom? How do you even talk about current events when all, there's all this pressure to keep up with fast-paced curriculums? Um, I find this very disheartening. One Brooklyn Tech staffer told Chalkbeat, it's very sensitive and no one wants to get written up or lose their job. No one wants to say anything because no one wants to get into trouble. You know, we've spent a lot of time talking on this program about policing, the so-called Ferguson effect, the so-called Freddie Gray effect, the so-called Eric Garner effect, and basically... And this is an over, oversimplification, but basically it's a, it's a result of seeing high-profile incidents, police officers are afraid to do their job because they don't want to get caught on video doing the wrong thing. They don't want to get written up. They don't want to get sued. They don't want to get indicted. So they tend to look the other way, and they just keep walking. What I didn't realize fully, I mean, I guess I had a vague understanding of it because I do have a lot of friends that are teachers and assistant principals, but, and a couple of principals. What I didn't realize is that we're at a point where not just this issue, but I think this issue might be the greatest crystallization of it. Teachers are afraid to do their job. Teachers are afraid to teach. What kind of a world are we living in where cops are afraid to be cops and teachers are afraid to teach? What's next? Firefighters afraid to put out fires? Sanitation workers afraid to pick up trash? So the education department did provide school leaders with a resource guide to help them work with their staff to support instruction based on facts about the war in the Middle East, as well as resources on supporting students during this tough time. But uh, at one Brooklyn high school, students were frustrated by the lack of opportunities to talk about the conflict during the school day. They organized an after-school meeting supervised by teachers at school between Jewish and Muslim student groups. They planned to invite expert speakers to give students more background, according to a student who helped organize the events and spoke anonymously for fear of retaliation. See, even the students are afraid to be known. Because they don't want to be retaliated against. This is crazy. The students are not getting information, either current events information or historical information, in the classroom. So they're taking it upon themselves to organize instruction. And what a shame that is. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. I'd love to hear, especially from teachers, how do schools and teachers wade into difficult conversations? How do you do it? Uh, not just on this issue, but I think this issue is just one crystallization of it. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Let me tell you what's coming up. 
Very excited and very much in keeping with the theme that I outlined for the uh, for the program. David McCullough III is going to be here in about 15 minutes. He is the founder of something called the American Exchange Project. He's also the grandson of the late Pulitzer Prize-winning historian. And he is doing something that I just love. And he's helping build bridges across the American divide. One of the things that just drives me crazy about politics, about media, about how we live our lives is we get in these bubbles. We get in these bubbles where we're only surrounded by people like us, people who look like us, who think like us, who worship like us, who uh, uh, you know have the same sexual preferences that we do, and we have this um, lack of diversity. And when I say diversity, I don't just mean you know uh, racial or ethnic diversity diversity of thought and diversity of opinion. That's one thing when this discussion about diversity happens on college campuses that I don't think ever really gets discussed. There's not a uh, proper uh, proper weight given to diversity of views and intellectual diversity. And I love what David McCullough is doing in terms of putting people from different backgrounds together together. And we'll get into that in about 15 minutes. And obviously, we uh, we spoke a little bit about the passing of um, Rosalind Carter, the former first lady. I'm going to be joined by Jonathan Alter, who's uh, a columnist who's written a book, uh, mostly mostly favorable, but not a total whitewash of uh, the Jimmy Carter presidency. And uh, basically, not just about his presidency, but about his life. So we're going to talk about what kind of person Rosalind Carter was and uh, try to get a, a deeper understanding of the relationship that the Carters had with one another. I'll also go through your email and snail mail correspondence. We did make a trip to the uh, post office and uh, we did pick up a, a hunk of letters. So we'll go through some of your mail or the, the mail that you've sent to me next hour. If you do want to send an email, over. You can do so at uh, frank.morano at uh, wabcradio.com or frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. You know, the other thing I wanted to mention in line with what we were talking about is there was a story of a USC professor, University of Southern California, uh, that recently... um, So the incidents have been very emotional for a lot of people involved. And there was a professor of economics who called Hamas terrorists, murderers who should be killed in front of a group of pro-Palestinian students on campus. And Professor John Strauss was shifted to teach the rest of his classes for the semester remotely after the confrontation between him and the students earlier this month. Two uh, petitions have gained steam on social media, one in support of Strauss, which currently has over 9,000 signatures, and one demanding his termination with over 6,500 signatures. The petition in support of Strauss demands a complete review of the incident and re-examination of university policies regarding professor suspensions. In the interview uh, that he did with Fox News... Strauss said he first encountered the protest on the way to teach his class, and when he heard the students shouting from the river to the sea, which he said is code for the destruction of Israel, he said he responded by yelling back, Israel forever, Hamas are murderers. 
Strauss, who was also accused of intentionally stepping on signs containing the names of dead Palestinian civilians, said in um, an interview that it was not intentional. Now, my view of this situation is he didn't say any of this in his job as a teacher. He did not say any of this in the classroom, as far as we know at this point. And if this is all that he did to basically give his view of what should happen to Hamas, to people that were chanting a slogan that he found in, and a lot of other people find incendiary, I don't think that's cause for either suspension or firing. But again, I always err on the side of free speech. Curious uh, what you think. 800-848-9222. Four open lines if you want to comment. 800-848-9222. Tony is in Florida. Hello there, Tony. Hello there. You know how this thing goes, the more things change, the more they stay the same? Well, I went to school in the 60s and 70s. And from kindergarten through 12th grade, the civil, I mean, the Vietnam War was going on. Not one teacher in one grade ever talked to the class about the Vietnam War. It was never discussed, ever. Well, I, first of and, all, I didn't realize that. I think that's a real shame, too. Yeah, it was. I mean, we knew there was a war because uh, of the news, but you're a kid. How much news do you watch? But, uh, but that parents didn't talk about it. The teachers didn't talk about it. The kids didn't talk about it. So we really were in the dark. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's uh, I think that's a real shame. I would have hoped that schools would have uh, provided some of the historical background for what was going on in Vietnam, just as I'd hope they'd uh, uh, supply some of the historical background for what's going on in the Middle East, Tony. I, I believe the same thing. And looking back, I've done it before. I, I couldn't. I can't understand why they never mentioned it or Be, explained it to us. Because you know, and look, I'm not talking about uh, proselytizing or propagandizing. But what that does is it creates a generation of people that are completely uninformed when it's their time to vote about the most controversial issues in the world. Right. Exactly. Yeah, thanks for the call, Tony. Appreciate it. You know, someone sent me an SMS text message, and you can do so as well, at 8168 Morano, saying it's not the job of schools to teach current events and have conversations about controversial issues. I completely disagree. I completely disagree. One of my favorite subjects in school was current events. And so often we would go through the current events that uh, we were all expected to have an understanding of. And this is going back all the way back to grade school. And then I would be interested in what was going on. I would want to go learn more on my own about the issues that were being discussed in school. And uh, I was really inspired to uh, try to become uh, not an expert, but at least better informed about some of these things. So uh, I I think this is a, a terrible precedent that we're that we're setting, and I hope uh, schools don't continue on this path. But if you agree, if you disagree, or if you have a comment, you can certainly call in at eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Similarly, on the free speech front. This might be a little different. I feel a bit differently about this than I do this professor at uh, USC that was suspended. But there's a fight going on now 
between NYU Langone Health and the well-known director of its prestigious Perlmutter Cancer Center, and now it's being spilled out into court. Benjamin Neal filed suit against the health system on Friday because of its decision to terminate his contract over several social media posts about the Israel-Hamas war that he reshared on Twitter. Neal alleges he was unceremoniously dumped without due process and in violation of city and state human rights laws against religious discrimination. The reposts, which Dr. Neal made as a private citizen and are no way, uh, in no way associated with NYU, are objectively pretty tepid and muted compared to the thousands of uh, opinions currently circulating on social media. He also isn't the only New York City doctor to face discipline over social media usage since the Hamas attack. NYU Langone also moved to terminate a resident physician at its Long Island hospital after he reposted a message encouraging Palestinian resistance on his private Instagram account. Referencing that incident in the lawsuit or in the complaint, Neil argues he was offered up as a sacrificial lamb so that the health system could feign impartiality in its efforts to curb political and religious expression. A NYU Langone spokesperson defended the decision to terminate Neil's contract. This is what they said. Several times since last month, we reminded all employees of our high standards as well as our code of conduct and social media policy. Nonetheless, Dr. Ben Neal, as a leader of our institution, disregarded these standards in a series of public social media posts and later locked his Twitter account. Now, I don't know what the actual policies are that uh, NYU Langone expects its employees to adhere to on social media use. But if there is a prohibition on commenting on world affairs on social media because of your position with the health system, then maybe that's not as maybe that's not a crazy suspension. I do just hate limiting what people can do in their private life particularly if it involves free expression, just because of their job. Now, you have a First Amendment right to freedom of speech. You do not have a First Amendment right to a great job. So if this is part of their agreement, maybe this is not as egregious as the USC incident. But as far as the USC incident goes, I don't see any case that this gentleman should be fired. 800-848-9222, Aaron in New Jersey, what's on your mind? Yeah, I wanted to just briefly comment about what you were saying before about the professor that was calling uh, the pro-Palestinian uh, protesters. Yeah, he was calling the, the Hamas members terrorists and saying they should be killed. Right, right. On the flip side, you do have other professors in other places that are encouraging students to go. And I don't know if they're going as far as encouraging violence, but they're encouraging that, you know, to an nth degree. And you don't hear as much condemnation about that. I find that a little interesting. Yeah, well, look, I mean, um, I, I think I I would say the same thing if um, he was walking by and saying that uh, members of the IDF should be killed. I, I don't think, unless he's bringing that into the classroom, if he's expressing his view, even, you know, to basically an angry mob of protesters, I don't see any reason that should be cause for him losing his job. Just because he's a teacher, he still has a right to freedom of speech. 
Right. Yeah, yeah, I hear that. But like I said, the, the other flip side, you know, is if there is a professor <clears throat> charging any violence or these angry mobs, you know, against whether it's Israel or against any, anyone, you know, like charging the terrorist uh, supporters, I, I think that's also wrong. That That's for sure wrong. It should be, you know, that should be condemned. Yeah, Aaron, thanks, Aaron. My view is the solution to speech that you don't like is more speech that you do like. I think uh, actions are one thing, speech is another. All right, 800-848-9222 if you want to continue to weigh in on this. We're going to talk with David McCullough III straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I am Frank Morano. One of the things that I have sought to do on this program, with I'm going to say mixed success, is force people to hear things that they're not interested in. And I hear already people are screaming at their radios, You got that right, Morano! We're not interested in anything you do! And I have sought to, uh, if you think you're only interested in X get you to at least hear why. For controversial subjects like the Israel-Palestinian conflict, the Russia-Ukraine war, presidential elections, I love to have on people with multiple points of views, if possible, at the same time. The Kennedy assassination, you name it. Because I really do think one of the greatest dangers in America today is so many of us live in a bubble. We're seeing a time where a couple of things have happened. There's now no longer such a thing as the loyal opposition. The days of uh, debating with someone during the day and then going out for a beer with them or dinner are gone. We're at a point where Democrats and Republicans are refusing to date one another. If that weren't bad enough, we're now seeing survey after survey that's saying that are saying people who are Democrats don't want to live in communities with Republicans and vice versa. I asked someone recently, hey, 
Why are you moving to Florida? Oh, I like the politics of that state a lot more than the state that I'm living in. I had a party for my son over the weekend, and someone said something supportive of uh, President Biden. And someone said to me, oh, what did you invite her for? You invited Biden supporters? Yes. We invited all the political views. We didn't uh, have a litmus test based on what how someone votes. And the thing that's amazing to me is that that's so rare on radio these days, and it's so rare in parties these days. Which is why I absolutely love the work of the American Exchange Project. Ever since I first learned about it, I have become its most enthusiastic proponent and booster. And my hope is that not only will this uh, train a new generation of young people to get outside of the bubbles that we all occupy... But I would love to see this emulated across the spectrum for adults, for different workplaces. I think this is huge. Very, very pleased uh, to welcome the founder, the co-founder of the American Exchange Project. Also happens to be the grandson of a Pulitzer Prize winning historian, one of the best ever, uh, David McCullough III. David, it's great to have you on the program. Thanks for joining me uh, so late at night especially. Yeah, thanks, Frank. I was going to ask, is it applicable to say good morning right now or good evening? What do, what do we call it? Well, it's still it's still evening on the West Coast where we do have a lot of uh, listeners. So it's a <laughs> dealer's choice as far as that goes. By the way, I, uh, uh, I'm i sure you hear this all the time, but I was just such an, a great admirer of your, your grandfather's. And I actually got to meet him uh, before he passed away. And uh, I uh, got to tell him what a fan I was of his work. And uh, I'm sorry uh, for your family's loss. Oh, thank you very much. That means a lot. And Thanks for supporting the family. He was a terrific guy, and you know it came down to a few, but I'm very glad with the grandparents I picked in the end. <laughs> I bet. All right. Um, so before we get into the details of what the American Exchange Project is, when did you realize that uh, people being in a bubble was a problem? When did you realize that the level of toxicity and polarization that we're seeing in the country right now was problematic? Um, it's a great question. I, you know, there's an interesting element of the issue that you're talking about and the statistics go beyond what you were just mentioning at the beginning of the show. You know, 35% of people in this country think we'd be better off if people on the other side, be that a Democrat or Republican, whatever side you're on, just died. 40% think that we're in favor of secession if their candidate lost. I think some of the, uh, aspects of division in America today are unique to the time that we're in. And then others touch very fundamental parts of human nature that are tribal, um, that are uh, like to stick close to who we are, that have a kind of with us or against us, everything is black and white mentality and need to vanquish the other so that we can have our own victories. Um, and I, I, you know, I was born in Hawaii. My mom's side of the family is Armenian and they came here fleeing the Armenian genocide. So there's a lot of trauma on that side of the family. And, and they were certainly the victims of many of my relatives, distant or great and my great grandparents' generation died as the victims of what prejudice and hatred can do at its worst. Um, growing up in Hawaii, where I was one of the only white kids in my classes and on my baseball teams, I was just exposed to a great level of diversity and always understood that this form of with us or against us certainty, this sort of tribalism, uh, can really be 
uh, corrosive to our society. And then growing up as my grandfather's grandson, my dad's son, my dad's a high school teacher, teaches American literature. I can see how that also corrodes the democratic experiment. It really came to a head, though, in 2016. Um, I borrowed my mom's car in the summer of 2016, drove 7,000 miles around the country um, on a research project to study education in some of our country's most impoverished communities and found myself in my own country, but a world away from the hometown that I'd grown up in and saw how uh, unequal and how divided just the opportunities are in our country facing life right now. And when I came back, that November and Donald Trump was elected and everybody in my world of Yale where I went to college in Boston, the suburbs of Boston where I was from, couldn't believe that he, he was the president. I was thinking, well, we, we just must, must have no clue what's actually going on in America. I mean, we must not see it. And it baffled me that, you know, students at my university, some of the most educated people in the country could, could have no idea what's really going on in our country. And it's only gotten worse since, since 2016. Um, and, and as we went around in the years following the election, I came across more and more teenagers all over the country voicing one common complaint when I asked them what's their least favorite thing about where they're growing up. I said, we feel like we're growing up in a bubble and we've never seen life outside the bubble. And all the research that we see, you know, Bill Bishop's book, The Big Sort, Robert Putnam's work on social capital and the upswing and our kids, the American Dream and Crisis are all pointing to the increasing political and socioeconomic homogeneity of American communities and that we're literally moving apart from one another. It's like this big, slow, kind of quiet national divorce that's happening as a byproduct of all of these divisions we're talking about. Yeah, I find myself agreeing with just about everything that you've that you've said. In your experience, do you think the the problem is just political or race based, or is there a cultural element to the division and polarization as well? I think, like anything, it's layered. I wouldn't confine it to one category. You know, certainly with the teenagers that we work with, I think the divisions are more along the lines of class than anything else. You know, the American dream is supposed to be one of the great binding agents in our society, but the reality is that for children today their futures are going to be determined by the zip code they're born in more than it's going to be determined by their skill, their ingenuity, or their work ethic. I mean, how do you promise any validity to the American experiment when that's the case? So, I, I mean, I think these are class divisions we're looking at that where politics is layered upon that. Um, race and ethnicity has a huge part of it. But, you know, America, especially rural America, is more diverse than Americans give it credit for. I think a lot of this stems and comes back to, frankly, ignorance. You know, uh, three quarters of white people don't have a friend who isn't white. And 40% of Americans have never met a farmer. I really think we're pushing each other away because we don't know each other as well as we think we do. Mm. Uh, what a, a great point. So what's the American Exchange Project? What are you hoping to do, given uh, now that you've described the problem, and I hope people have an understanding of, of what the potential dangers of continuing along this plan, uh, this path is? What's the American Exchange Project? Yeah, so our, our antidote to all of this is an exchange program. And we send students in the summer after they graduate from high school on a free week-long trip to an American town that's totally different from the one that they're growing up in. So I, I live in Boston, so kids from Boston would go to Dodge City, Kansas, and kids from Dodge City would go to Palo Alto, California, and Palo Alto, California would go to Blue Earth, Minnesota. And the whole idea is for them to have fun, to learn more about one another, and to authentically experience what it's like to grow up in a different community. We found that when they do that, they themselves grow up there. So suddenly for a Boston kid, you know, Dodge City, Kansas, for a little bit of time is woven into 
who they are. And that is a, uh, as I said, a wonderful antidote to all of the other polarizing forces that are going to be drawing them away from the people in Dodge City that they'll come to know and probably love across their exchange week. Uh, We've been at it for three years. We've more than tripled in size within the last few years. We had 300 students from 57 high schools. Last year, we anticipate between 600 and 1,000 kids in the program. And we feel that this sort of experience going to a different American town should be as much a part of the senior year of high school as the senior prom. I think that would be a wonderful thing. Do you find that the uh, the young person that's engaging on this, that not only does he benefit, but does that the community that he goes to, uh, say a, uh, a rural person going to an urban family, for instance, does the osmosis work both ways? Does the urban environment that's hosting the rural teenager also benefit from that exchange of ideas? Enormously so. It's all focused on connection. And we're learning more and more the value of the social connections in one's life for the civic health of our society, for the economic opportunities of the people involved in those connections, and for the mental and developmental health of the young people. I think the most powerful bonds we see in our program are between the students and the host families. And there's just something very innate and welcoming the vulnerable person, especially when it's a young person for an adult and welcoming them into your home and giving them a bed and a hot meal and and showing them around and to see the faces light up when they realize how cool Sheridan, Wyoming is or Riggins, Idaho or the Bronx. And to be delighted by this, this corner of the world that you kind of take for granted as mundane, but somebody else from somewhere else thinks it's the greatest place ever. And, And suddenly you get to be the person who gave them that. And that phenomenon, I think, touches the other very deep part of our psyche that runs counter to the part we were talking about earlier, the part that is kind of with us or against us, that is us first, them, that vanquishes the other. It's the part of us that needs community and connection and wants to look out for one another. We're talking with David McCullough III. He's the co-founder of something called the American Exchange Project. If you want to learn more, you can go to AmericanExchangeProject.org. That's AmericanExchangeProject.org. So far, how many young people have gone through this program, David? Ballpark? 500. 500. And uh, I would imagine that uh, they all have similar stories about uh, what a great growth opportunity this is for them. They do. And some of them are really wonderful. We had a student from Albany, California, who uh, went to a little town outside Sioux Falls called Flandreau, South Dakota, and had a wonderful time, then matriculated to his first year of culinary school in New York. And the school he went to had a rule that says you have to work as a line cook in a restaurant. And because the school is so prestigious, many kids went to the top restaurants in New York and London, Paris, L.A., you name it. He said no thanks to all that and went right back to Sioux Falls, South Dakota for his first year job in a restaurant. Um, And loads of stories like that are coming out of the program all the time. It's wonderful to see. We're we're literally kind of these kids are are almost like the needle weaving the country closer together. And there's a lot of uh, supporters across the spectrum of what you're doing. I think that's a recognition in part that people know that this level of uh, polarization is unsustainable if this continues 
How do we know that this is doing anything? How do we know that a young person that goes through this and uh, bonds with a host family gets something out of it more than just uh, a nice vacation and an opportunity to meet some nice people? How do we know that this this exchange for a week leads to some change in their uh, willingness to engage people and at least recognize the different thought process, processes of people that aren't like them in the future? Sure. Well, you, you study it and you take time to build it and you build it intentionally and well. So the first thing is over time, we see how the behavior of these students is changed and different from their peers that didn't go through the program. And that's going to take years to find, but we're already three years into it. This is our fourth summer coming up. The second thing we've done is partner with people who are way smarter than us about this stuff. Um, we're working with Julia Minson, who's a psychologist at the Harvard Kennedy School and studies the psychology of disagreement. And last year, we conducted pre- and post-surveys with our kids, and we measured uh, their psychological development across the program. And we found that kids who went through the experience were much less biased toward the tribes other than their own after the experience. So their bias toward the other went down significantly. Interestingly, their bias against their own group went up significantly. And when taken together, we can say that students who go through the experience see people not necessarily as uh, part and parcel of a group that they might be defining them by. You know, look at me and you'll see I'm a white guy from New England. But, but as individuals, as people that come from their own unique places with their own unique situations. In other words, that few things in life are black and white and everything's gray. We also found that we tested kids on 10 different emotional categories when confronted with the prospect of interacting with someone who might disagree with them or who might be very different from them. And we found that in the emotional categories of relaxed, enthusiastic, and cheerful, the kids went up significantly after the experience. And then for civic health, you know, the kids uh, increased significantly in two statement areas. The first being, I'm optimistic for the future of America, and I have faith in my fellow Americans. And then as a byproduct of the experience, we found the kids made on average three new friends and over 90% of the students who took part made a significant friendship because of the AEP experience. So the numbers we're seeing come back, coming back are really great. And the focus groups testify, and the groups from year one are still really close. I, I think that's terrific. And we've heard so much over the years about the benefits of international exchange students and international mm-hmm. exchange programs. So to have one within communities in the United States that uh, some people do consider different countries, I think is a, a real a, a real benefit. And there was even an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation where the Klingons and the uh, and the crew of the Enterprise did this, and it worked out to the benefit of, uh, of both races. <laughs> uh, so uh, I definitely recommend that. Hey, if people are listening right now, David, and they're thinking this sounds interesting, and they may want to volunteer to be a host yeah. family, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, go on our website, um, AmericanExchangeProject.org, and there's a button that they can click to learn more about hosting and can even send us a note about uh, signing up if we're already in your town. We're in 60 communities in 35 states across the country, and if we're not, we'd love to be in your town. So write us a letter, and our team will work with you to bring AEP to your community. We're growing all the time. What is your concern if things continue to get worse, if we continue to be this divided within our own country? Where do you see the country going? I think that the real threat will be if the headlines and the agents that are actively trying to polarize us and are frankly profiting off of dividing America, if they uh, they create kind of pervasive 
pessimism in our country that makes us believe we are really the country we see on the news mm. and that we're not a country full of good people who under the right circumstances will get along with each other and come to like one another and want to work together to solve our shared problems. If the pessimism rises and if we lose hope that uh, we are what we might see ourselves to be on television, then I think we're really in trouble. We can't forget that and we can't, we can't give up hope and we can't lose our conviction that we're able to get along with people because folks have to take the chance. It's it, The kids who do this are very brave. And we're putting them on a plane alone to a faraway place to stay with people they've never met before in which every stereotype and headline has told them they're going to be ostracized and pushed away and shouted out of the room. And they take the chance to say, you know, I don't think that's going to be true. I'm going to put my faith in strangers and say that I'm going to have a great time anyway. And it works out. But if we, if the voices trying to divide us make that fear of the other so large and that fear that automatically breeds anger and hatred, then I think, um, I think we're really in for it. Well, I, I love what you're doing. I hope it's emulated in other sectors, including among adults as well. And uh, I don't know if you ever saw the miniseries, uh, The Plot Against America. It's ri- written by a, uh, it's based on a Philip Roth book, a novel. Mm. And one of the subplots, it, not necessarily to do with the main part of it, but it is interesting, is that there is something like this that is rolled out in a an alternative version of 1930s America. Uh, it's called huh. The just folks program and in that in that miniseries they send urban jewish children to live with um rural gentile children and a couple of the families profiled in this do seem to get a lot of benefit i realize that's fiction but as i'm listening to you describe what you're hoping to do it did remind me uh, of that um david thank you so much i hope we can do this again I'd love that, Frank. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, David McCullough III, you can uh, check out what uh, the American Exchange Project is up to by going to AmericanExchangeProject.org. That's AmericanExchangeProject.org. Comments, questions, thoughts, 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side at Midnight with Frank Morano. Christmas is you. This is a, a birthday bumper music selection 
from uh, my friend Melissa Armenia Kowalski. I know Melissa a long time and her husband Tommy and uh, a great couple and a great family. And uh, she requested this as her as her birthday wish. So who am I to deny that? You know, I read an article yesterday that Mariah Carey, I think it took her something like 15 minutes to record this song. And she has made tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars just from that song. And because of all the money that she's made with this song, there's actually a big court fight over this song. She is be- she's been sued before for that song. And she's being sued again. Um, over this song, Andy Stone and Troy Powers, they're seeking at least $20 million from Mariah Carey, saying that they also wrote a song with the same name in 1989. So we'll see where that goes. I don't know if it's going to go anywhere, but it is going to be interesting. You know what is just driving me crazy? And I hate to burden you with this, but sometimes you have things on your mind. You got to just share them. So we got, we ordered, we catered Carmine's birthday party on Saturday and we, they gave us some trays. The food was great and they brought us some trays and some sternos and you're supposed to bring them back after the party. Well, what do you do when, what do you do when the party's over? You bring them back and to ensure that you bring them back, they you make you give a $21 deposit. So my life, wife left a deposit when she ordered the food on Sunday I bring the trays back. They give me $21. I come home and I say, all right, they gave me $21. I start handing it to my wife. I think I did. And she said, no, 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 that's okay. You keep it. I said, great. Now I can buy gasoline tomorrow. Wonderful. And for the last 24 hours, I cannot find where I put this $21. I checked the pants that I was wearing. I checked the shirt that I had on because it was a shirt that had one of those front pockets. I checked at where I keep my wallet. I looked in my wallet. I thought for sure that I put it in my back pocket. And I have decided at this very moment that I am going to stop looking for it. Because this always happens where you go crazy looking for something and then when you stop looking, it just appears. And this is not the week that I I was really looking forward to spending that $21. But now I I just can't find it. I do not know where I put it. I looked. I retraced my steps. I looked in the car. First of all, it doesn't help that uh, by the time I wake up, it's already starting to get dark. It's just dark all the time now. I feel like I'm living in a dystopian nuclear science fiction film where it's dark all the time. It's a nuclear winter. But... I look everywhere, and I can't find it. It's a very frustrating feeling. I know I had it. I had it 36 hours ago. But where is it? I don't know. So we'll see where that goes. Hey, uh, we're going to go through your mail. Well, not your mail, but the mail that you send me, frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com, if you want to send a message, or um, give me a call, 800-848-9222. Still to come, Jonathan Alter will join us to talk about Rosalind Carter. All that and a whole lot more. Your influence counts. Be sure to use it. 